Well, I think a few of you may know about me that I like art. I like paintings a lot. I like going to theaters. I find that stuff really very interesting. And uh, one piece that I, I find very interesting is something that was painted in October of 1855 by a name I'm sure all of you recognize, Vincent van Gogh. He was a brilliant and troubled Dutch artist. And in this month, 1855, he completed a painting called Still Life with a Bible. Now, you know what a still life is. It's when you take a vase of flowers or a bowl of fruit and, and, and just paint a, a, a simple scene. But he entitled it Still Life with a Bible. Now, as you might imagine, it had a Bible in it, but the Bible is kind of the controversy of the painting. Because in the time in which this was painted, it was a time of vast scientific revolution in the Western world. Western civilization's view of what the world was and what it meant and where it came from and where it was going was radically changing. And the trustworthiness of something like the Bible was being challenged from every major facet of culture, from art and politics and philosophy and science and so on. And so this painting, I think, kind of reveals, gives away the mindset of Van Gogh's age. So in the painting, we see a large open Bible, and it is yellowed and fading and dusty and seems like it's maybe just not been used very recently. And next to it, we see an extinguished candle set against a dark background. And in front of them both, there's something that catches our eye. There's a bright yellow little book called The Joy of Life, which was the novel by the, I believe, French novelist Emile Zola, about a young woman shedding the burden of her old life, her old responsibilities, the old way of being a prim and proper person in society, and instead pursuing whatever might bring her pleasure. And so the bright yellow flame of the candle that our eye should be drawn to, perhaps, that's extinguished. What's in the background is a dark candle and a darkened Bible, but the bright yellow binding is now transferred, uh, uh, or the bright yellow is now transferred to the binding on this modern novel that sits in front of both. And so the message, it seems, that Van Gogh is after is clear. In the old days, society was illumined by the stories of the Bible, which Van Gogh, again, cast as dark and primitive and in the background. But a new age is here. A new age of self-fulfillment. A new age of self-realization. A time in which we can use our scientific knowledge. We can use our individual body. We can use our collective or personal money to take whatever we want from whoever we want and join the frantic search for joy, the joy of life at any and all cost. But what Van Gogh paints with joy here, Peter warns about with grief. Because there's an ever-present danger of being deceived by what seems to be kind of a, a carefree spirit. Ah, we hear I'll pay attention to the Bible, that old book that's just filled with scare tactics, that old book that just seems to be about judgmental superstition and hypocrisy. Don't worry about anything like that. Just do whatever makes you, as an individual, 
happy. Pursue your self at the cost of everything else. But the same voices that tell us that the Bible is just a giant buzzkill, more often than not, will turn around and tell you things like that greed is good, that lust is life, that selfishness, self-centeredness is salvation. But let's be clear here. I want to make, I want to make something very clear. Joy is a good thing. Happiness is a good thing. And the Bible, and more importantly, the God of the Bible, is not trying to rob joy from you. That's a common stereotype we hear from people that are opposed to the faith. That God is trying to, and the Bible is trying to steal joy from us, but it's not. In fact, God is trying to give us joy by building a kingdom in which your just joy and holy happiness never stop. Where we live in peace and righteousness with one another because as the psalmist confesses, at Thy right hand, Lord, there are pleasures forevermore. That's the vision of the Scriptures for humanity. A just and ordered society where everyone is at peace and everyone has everything they need and God is at the center of it. But the false teachers of Peter's day never really went away. They instead evolved into the gurus and leaders and influencers of our own day, telling us not to feel guilt when we exploit and when we use people like they're things to be discarded instead of people made in the image of God to be loved and treasured. And so, for this morning and for the next several Sundays, we're going to be dealing with something that nobody wants to deal with. Not, especially not me. We're going to be dealing with false teachers and the problems that come with their false teaching. Now folks, I'm going to be honest with you. Things are going to get rough. Harsh words are going to be said about our culture and the people in our culture because Peter's gloves are coming off. See, up until now, in 1 Peter, and arguably even in the first portion of 2 Peter, we've seen Peter take on kind of a pastoral role. He's guiding and guarding the sheep. But the gloves are coming off because the wolves are out. And Peter's got some snouts to punch. And so, to be totally forthright with you, we are going to deal with some uncomfortable confrontation. I know none of us like that. As I look around this church, I see a bunch of very sweet people that would rather do anything in the world than confront others. Maybe even about silly things. But we're going to have to get a little confrontational because the Scripture does. But it doesn't do so, again, just because it's mean-spirited, but because it's trying to preserve the good life, the true and eternal joy of Jesus that is offered to us in the Gospel. God wants us to have everything, but it's the false teachers that want us to settle for a lower vision of what's good and what's joyful. It seems to our warped minds sometimes that their vision seems more free, more life-giving, but it's not. And so Peter will preserve that gospel for us at any and all cost. But as a reminder of where we're coming from, last week Peter accused 
Peter was accused, rather, of believing and propagating a myth that the resurrection and therefore the return of Jesus Christ was just a made-up story. But here's Peter, who's facing the death penalty, and he shoots this theory down because he himself saw Jesus transfigured and resurrected with his own eyes. And there was no turning back from that. He witnessed Jesus as God in the flesh. And now he's willing to die in order to share the news that Christ, by his own death, has defeated the power of death in our world and in our lives personally. And so Peter here shows us what's really at stake If Jesus did rise from the grave, as Peter purports, that means that He will also be true to His Word and return to this world to judge it. And so, that also means that there is no neutral ground when it comes to the claims that Jesus is God. You can't be neutral on that issue, ultimately. And if all of that's really true, then Peter's accusers, whether they're in his era or our modern one, will be held accountable, especially for all the misleading words they said and all the selfish things that they tried to get people to do. They'll be held accountable for that. And so, in an age of intentional misleading and misinformation, if there's anything that I, could, I feel like we could define the 21st century as it's it's an age of wild misinformation. Everybody is very much on the internet and there are thousands upon thousands of voices conflicting with one another. And there are people out there that just enjoy the chaos of it. And so they'll say whatever to watch us panic and freak out and whatever else. And so in a time in which we are so easily led astray or tricked or deceived by what we hear on the internet or the TV or whatever, we especially must be careful not to let the false teachers of our day indoctrinate us with untrue words about God and about who we are in response to God. So, truly, listen carefully, Maranatha, Because this really is God's Word for you this morning. So let's begin by looking in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Peter starts off this chapter by laying out the bad news plain and simple. He says this in the first part of verse 1. He says, There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So it seems that Peter is setting up two categories for us to think about first he's talking about the past where there were false prophets with the people well who are those people who are these people he's referring to we'll get to that in just a moment but second he's looking also at the future and perhaps the present where there will be false teachers among you namely us and so in that first category peter is talking about the prophets and preachers of the old testament of Israel, who made a career off of lying to the people of God about how God felt about their idolatry and injustice. They made a career off of that. So that's who he's talking about 
in the first category. And in the second category, he's talking about the teachers and preachers who live off of us by lying to us now about who Jesus is and what he's done and who we are in response to Jesus. But let's think about that first category first. So I'll, I'll use a, we'll do a case study this morning. Now, just a few weeks ago in our Bible reading plan, we were reading through the prophet Jeremiah. And with the exclusion of maybe my mother, I think most of us were just grinding through it. It's a difficult book. She really enjoys it for some reason. I don't know psychologically what that suggests about her. But uh, no, it is a wonderful and beautiful book. But it's not an easy one. Because from the very outset of the book, the Lord calls Jeremiah, a young man, to do the most difficult thing a young man can do. And that's preach against the sin of his own people who he holds dearly. You can imagine what that would feel like. Here's a people that you love. You know, you know their songs and you know their food and you know their customs and their holidays and you're supposed to get up and denounce them? It'd be the worst thing in the world. But God calls him to, to preach against Jerusalem specifically her leaders, but going all the way down to her everyday citizens. And why does he do this? Because altogether, Jerusalem and Judah and the surrounding region had come, become totally evil and corrupt in all that she was doing. For instance, they were worshiping literal idols dedicated to the false gods of money and lust and military power. They were just not worshiping God. They were worshiping these other idols that could give them things, they thought. Ungodly things, for the most part, too. So that was, that was I mean, the major problem. But that was manifesting not just in their idolatry, but now it was warping their hearts towards one another where they were using and abusing each other, especially, Jeremiah talks about, the most vulnerable people, the people that need the most help, the people that the Jerusalem co-op should be helping, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and so on, those are the people that they were, uh, being, were, were using the worst. And so God is angry by how evil Jerusalem has become. And so He sends Jeremiah to preach a good old-fashioned Baptist turn or burn message to Jerusalem. And do you remember, this is fascinating, do you remember who the Bible says are the biggest opponents that Jeremiah faces? Is it the atheist college professors? Is it the, is it the you know, um, just the apathetic housewives? No! It's the priest and the prophet. Those are God's biggest enemies in that day. When Jeremiah preached to the people, repent of your selfish sins, love the Lord, and therefore care for each other, Pashur the priest beat him nearly to death and threw him in stocks. That was a priest. That was a preacher of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Beat him for preaching the word of the Lord. Hananiah the prophet preached against Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, God's judgment is coming. And Hananiah said, oh, God just loves Jerusalem. He's going to break the bond and the yoke of Babylon. We're going to be okay. Nothing's ever going to befall us. And guess what happened? Babylon came in some years later and utterly wiped out Jerusalem. 
Pashur and Hananiah and their descendants were eviscerated from the planet. And all the while, they were preaching this message, the power of positive thinking religion that they came up with. They were getting rich off of this and sending Judah assuredly to hell in a handbasket. Now why do I bring that up in relation to Peter? He doesn't really mention it. Well, I bring this up as a simple case study, as a reminder of what we've been reading in our Old Testament reading, but as proof to us that Peter wants us to remember the stories of our Bible. We just sang that beautiful song, I love to tell the story. It's interesting that a majority of the Scripture we have is stories. It's narrative. It's not laws. It's not rules. It's not lists. It's stories about people. Because some way that God has designed us as human beings to be, we respond to the stories He tells us. And the stories of the Old Testament. The stories that Peter says, remember the prophecy of the, the, the prophets and of the apostles, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he talked about last week. Remember those things because that will keep us from falling into the same old traps that recycle themselves in our cultures every generation. The Old Testament is loaded with thousands of years worth of stories about greedy and lustful this is the key, religious leaders who are charlatans and are doing what they're doing to deceive the people with an everything's okay mentality. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your society. Just go out and enjoy your life while the world around you comes crumbling down. We were just reading this, catching up on our Ezekiel reading last night. I was struck again how uh, one of Ezekiel's uh, problems with, uh, with even the prophets and preachers that are in exile is they're going out to the people and saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They're trying to lie to these people who were in literal chains in Babylon. Oh, this is, you know, this is just a, just think better about yourself, just You know, God is not mad. He doesn't want you to self-reflect. He doesn't want you to repent. That's a problem all throughout the Old Testament. Now folks, we like to hear good and encouraging and positive news. And that's, that's good. It is good to hear good news. That's why we as Christians talk about the good news a lot. Because that's important. But be careful, church, to pay attention to who is telling you the good news and what that good news is. Is the good news coming to you from the Lord who tells you although you were dead and your trespasses and sins, Christ loved and gave Himself up for you and your salvation? Is that the good news we're hearing? Or are we hearing a good news coming from some charming and handsome salesperson who tells us, just buy my thing. Just follow my plan. Just vote for my guy and nothing will ever go wrong for you. My fear is that in America today, we conflate the the, the sales pitches that we hear on the news or online with the good news of Jesus Christ. Folks, don't get it 
don't get it twisted. I don't care if it's Facebook or Google or Amazon or CNN or Fox News or Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or Paula White or whatever. To these people and entities, you are nothing more than a dollar sign or a voting block. You're not an image bearer of God. They don't care about your soul. They care about what you can do for them. Who you can put in power for them. Peter says that just like there were false prophets in Israel who always smoothed things over or had some snake oil to sell the people of Israel and told them what they wanted to hear, so are there false teachers in our day who will tell us whatever we want to hear to make us give them our support or money or whatever, and they don't care if what they're saying is true or not. It's not surprising that the world falls prey to this. Because what other hope do they have? If they think it's, this is all there is, that's the only hope they have. But it's disheartening and discouraging and disillusioning when we see brothers and sisters in Christ fall for this stuff. And let's be honest, folks. It's really discouraging when we see in our own hearts that we fall for this stuff. It's easy to blame, oh, Bubba over here for liking this news station, or oh, uh, this lady over here for liking this other one. And, you know, we get dis- discouraged with both, but let's be real. The problem starts in our own hearts. I've said this before. G.K. Chesterton's famous you know, story about him, I think it was World Magazine or something was saying, what's wrong with the world today in the late 1800s, early 1900s? What's wrong with the world today? And he wrote back the greatest answer of all time. He said, dear sirs and madams, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Because he understood that the problem with our society always starts with our own selves. Now, it's easy for us to blame things that we don't like, but let's not scapegoat. Let's be honest and realize that the problem starts with us and our own spiritual gullibility. Now, Maranatha, don't be so naive, I should say, as to let anyone simply saying that I'm a Christian and therefore you can listen to me, don't let that mean anything until they have proven and their thoughts and their words and their deeds, that their Christianity is about Jesus Christ. And their Christianity is not about, well, I'm a Christian who wants us to get back to the good old days. You look in this Bible and this Old Testament, find me some good old days in there. You have it in Genesis 1 and 2, and then after that, nothing. No good old days. Anybody who says, I'm a Christian, but here's this newfangled ideology that, that God wants you to buy into. Don't listen to that stuff, folks. It is so prevalent in our culture. <laughs> people know, politicians know, corporate people know that if they say, oh, we're just a Christian company, that we'll buy, we'll buy into that stuff. They might not recognizably say anything about Jesus, but if they use that branding, we'll buy into it. Don't be so easily deceived, Christian. If it's not about Jesus and His love for us by going to the cross and rising to redeem us, if that's not the core of what they care about, 
they are not recognizably Christian. Pastor Tom Wright very helpfully points out that even among Jesus' own followers, there was one whose book we're reading named Peter, who Jesus himself called Satan. And there was yet another named Judas who eventually did Satan's work for him. And so I would think that if even Jesus' apostles can be deceived and used by the devil, folks, we ought to all the more be on guard for ourselves. For the one that comes disguised as an angel of light with these myths about how to make it all better, how to make these people go away, how to make sure you'll always be safe in your home, how to make sure you'll always have money on the bank, how to make sure that you'll never be taxed for this thing. Folks, don't fall for those things. Well, let's just take a breather for a second. This is really intense stuff. I promise you, I don't like it any more than you do. This Bible made my life complicated because I have to read it every week and say, how in the world am I supposed to talk about that? I don't even want to read it, and now I'm supposed to preach it? But is everyone still with me? Okay. I told you this wasn't easy stuff. And while this can be spiritually scary, I don't at the same time want us to go out living in constant fear and paranoia about everything and everyone around us. We are to be vigilant. Jesus reminds us that be harmless as doves, but be as clever and wise as serpents. And while Peter also warns us to be vigilant, he does give us some helpful signposts that say, danger this way. And so we're not left to our own devices to figure out who's trying to use us in some way. So let's look. Verse 1a, he tells us some common characteristics of false teachers and false prophets. He says first, they will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Now Warren Wearsby, the Bible teacher, points out that the word heresy has to do with a sect or a party. That's its original meaning. And so he goes on to say that we can find false teachers in our congregation when one group or sect or party within the congregation, within the body of the church, tries to divide the rest of it. That's one quick way to find some false teachers. Because these people aren't interested in fellowship. They're not interested in forgiveness. They're interested in divide and conquer. That's what false teachers are about. But they'll never do this out in the open. Wearsby points this out very helpfully. This often happens behind closed doors and in secret meetings and through private messages. Folks, if, if, if somebody comes in and wants to start separating several of us off to the side and get us to turn on the rest of each other, that is not a work of the Lord. That's the work of Satan who's trying to divide. That's slithering into our pews and saying, did God really say that those people are forgiven too? Did God really say you have to love those people that are challenging to you personally? If these people wanted to help the church, they'd unite it. 
if they wanted to do so, um, if they wanted to bring healing to the church, they would do so publicly, not privately. If it came from the Lord, they could work in the open. But if it comes from Satan, they'll scheme in the dark. And so be on the lookout, church, for these kind of people that want to divide and gossip and slander and plant doubt. You know, it's amazing when the early church was being established, I think it's in Acts 6, that the, 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 the preachers are having to go and, and take care of um, you know, clothing and feeding. And they're, they're, really, they're not having any time to actually teach the people that need the Word of God. God helps them to elect deacons. Deacons, the deacons who are here this morning, I'm going to put you all on blast for a moment. What deacons are to do, and what every servant of the church, not just the elected deacons, deacons come in to, because there are divisions in the church between the Hellenistic women and, and the, the Jewish men or whoever, the deacons come in to smooth that tension over and to get people to love one another. And they go out and serving so that people can love each other and be healed and not divided over race, not divided over money, not divided over gender, that people love and care for one another. So the goal of the uh, servant of God, not just an elected deacon, but all God's servants, is to smooth over tension where they find it, not to inflame it. To, to bring healing and reconciliation so God might be glorified. Ephesians 3 talks about, that's where when God tears those dividing walls down, that's how we show the glory of God by making sure that dividing walls stay down. They stay in rubble forever and we build other people up. False teachers want to bring division, firstly. But secondly, they also want to bring denial. They deny the Master, Peter says. How do they deny? Well, they start by denying the, the efficacy, the sufficiency, the centrality of Jesus Christ to all of our spiritual problems. See, Jesus is the only Savior Loving and serving and worshiping and trusting Jesus is the only way forward to build a church and to save the world. That's the only way. And so when it's Jesus, sure, plus, uh, wrong. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And so when they deny that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that Jesus is the only way for society to have any hope, then they're denying the Master Himself. Because only Jesus is the only person qualified to save sinners. And what, whether they're religious sinners, or heathen sinners, or rich, or poor, or black, or white, or, or male, or female, whatever, Jesus is the only way to save those people. He's the only person qualified because He has the power of God by being fully God. And yet, He has the the right by being fully human and can offer up payment on our behalf. So what people believe about Jesus will tell you all that you need to know about their teaching. If Jesus is only a teacher or a prophet or an inspiration or a hero or some kind of jumping off point for them, but He is not ultimately and finally God with us, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, rest assured they will bring swift destruction on themselves and on you if you fall for it. 
So these false teachers, one, divide the church, two, they deny the Christ, and third, and finally, they are depraved themselves. Peter writes in verses 2 through 3a, he says, many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They'll exploit you and their greed with made-up stories. Now, Peter doesn't go into lurid detail here when he says depraved ways, but I think he would agree and echo Jude, very similar book to 2 Peter, who writes that these false teachers turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny Jesus Christ. So in other words, false teachers will use the truth of the Gospel to gain power so they can do whatever they want with whoever they want. And therefore indulge in whatever selfish, abusive lust they might have. Now folks, to be honest with you, I don't have the time nor the energy to rehearse for you in the 21st century alone how false teachers have maligned the truth of Jesus Christ because they thought that meaningless sex was more important than eternal sanctification. The scandals that have rocked the evangelical world in the past 10-15 years alone should have us in sackcloth and ashes around the clock. But friends, I will just do this instead. I'll remind you that human bodies matter because God made male and He made female and He said, this is good. And so what we do with our bodies matter and very importantly to remind ourselves how we treat one another's bodies matters to God. So my pastoral reminder to you, and we'll leave it at this for now, is that the sh- to bring shame on the Gospel is not worth whatever sensation you might be chasing. It's just not. And the thrill of the moment is not worth the hell you unleash on the lives of the people around you. It's not. We've seen that in positions of power. These... These institutions, these evangelical leaders, these celebrity pastors, we thought were the greatest thing since sliced bread, could do no wrong. Look at their church growth. Look at their ministry. And then they buy into their own hype and start worshiping themselves and bring disrepute on the Gospel when it hits national and international news. And the church splinters and some people walk away from the faith and people are, 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 are needing healing for years after that, all for chasing whatever desire they had in the moment. Instead of saying no to self and yes to Jesus and yes to loving other people more than loving myself. So beware, folks. False teachers will divide. They will deny and they will act in depraved ways. And they claim to bear a better news, a freedom for you. But what they're really doing is binding themselves to the bad news of God's justice on spiritual abusers and manipulators. See, this is where we can find great comfort. We see a lot of people in this world getting away with it. Not for long. God, does it. God sees the wicked things they do. He sees how they hurt and manipulate and how Peter says in a moment, they exploit you in their greed. 
God sees that and He promises He's going to return to do something about it. They won't outlast Him forever. Because He is so rich and gracious in mercy, He gives them sometimes a lifetime to repent. And like Zacchaeus, pay it back fourfold to the people that He stole from. He gives them a lifetime to do it. But if they won't do it on their own, He'll do it for them in the end. You can see why they don't want the resurrection to be true. They don't want the return to be true because that means their actions matter. And so, church, that means our actions matter. We read that their condemnation was pronounced long ago and is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. That reminds me a lot in, in Genesis 4 when God warns Cain, who became, not at the time when He warns him, but who became the first murderer. He says to Cain, he said, Son, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. But you can rule over it. We see how that worked out with Cain. That's what's crouching at all of our doors. It's what's crouching at the doors of the false teachers. It's what's crouching at all of our doors. Because we too are sinners and have gone astray. Sin desires to eat you alive, but you must rule over it. But here's the sad news, folks. Most of the time, we find that sin is the one that ends up ruling over us. And so our condemnation and destruction would be all but sure if not for Jesus. If not for Jesus, sin would have the final word. Condemnation and destruction would be the last thing that's said. But while Peter warns us to be better, we know that, that often we'll not be better. And it's because we can't be better on our own. But while that's bad news for false teachers and for sinners like us that deserve judgment, the good news is the final word for believing sinners. That Jesus died so that we might have grace and forgiveness and the joy of life abundantly. So Christians, trust in this Master. Believe His Word. And the real joy of life, the joy of eternal life, knowing that God's grace is sufficient for us, will be yours, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, be merciful to us. Guard us by Your Spirit from deception, division, denial, and depravity. And let us live in the hope and forgiveness of the Gospel of grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.